Hello, folks. Welcome to a premium edition of the LRIS podcast series. My name is Will Aitchison. I'm going to be your host today for a very interesting and a bit of a different discussion that we normally have uh, in LRIS podcasts. Uh, we have two guests. Vadisha uh, Worley is a professor at Lamar University uh, in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, she has fascinating background uh, that stretches over uh, many years. Uh, she began her career in India, where she earned her uh, degree as a lawyer, uh, and then came to the United States, where she obtained a master's in criminal law from the University of Buffalo and a PhD in criminal justice from Sam Houston State University in Texas. Uh, she's the author of over 80 publications, uh, including uh, serving as the editor for a two-volume encyclopedia that's called American Prisons and Jails, an, encyclope an encyclopedia of controversies and trends. Um, Adisha is with us today to speak about her experiences in the criminal justice program, teaching in that program at Lamar, and the students who come through that program. We are also joined by Angie Salvato from Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, Angie is a person who wears many, many hats. Uh, in addition to being in recruiting in the Anchorage Police Department, uh, Angie has served on the executive board of the union in Anchorage, uh, the Anchorage Police Department Employees Association for many years. Uh, and she uh, also acts as the chair of a very unique organization known as AC4C, the Anchorage Cops for Community. Uh, and this is an organization that is essentially uh, directed by the police union that has involved Anchorage police into the Anchorage community uh, in a way that is almost unique in contemporary law enforcement. Uh, and Angie will describe in this podcast some of the positive effects for union members and Anchorage police officers from the efforts of AC4C. In her spare time, she's getting a PhD uh, and wants to become a police psychologist. Uh, what we will be talking about in this podcast will be uh, what the modern recruiting world looks like for police. Who are the types of people who are becoming applicants? We all know there's fewer of them, but what are they like? Why do they want to become police officers, deputy sheriffs, corrections officers today? And what challenges are we facing and how potentially can we address those challenges? So with that, uh, join me as we have a conversation with Dr. Vadisha Worley and Angie Salvato. Vadisha and Angie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start by asking each, each of you to summarize a bit about your backgrounds, what it is that brought you to where you are today and your respective positions. Uh, Vadisha, let me start with you. Okay. Yes, I come from India. I started out uh, as a school teacher and uh, then a college, uh, you know, junior college teacher. And then I got bored with that. So I wanted to explore the law. So I started law. But uh, during law school, I had to support myself. So I got into journalism to do that. And then journalism became a passion for me. And <laughs> I uh, stuck to journalism for six years. 
I worked for three national dailies in, the, in India, uh, both all in New Delhi, the Asian Age, the Business Standard, and the, uh, then the last was the Financial Express, which is part of the Indian Express team, which is really big in India. So I, as a journalist, I started up at the desk, but then I moved on to um, working as a law correspondent because by then I had gotten my law degree. So um, I had graduated from law school and I did two years at a law firm, which was one of the largest law firms in India. And I loved the experience, but that journalism kept calling me back. <laughs> so I went back and I started covering the Delhi High Court and the Indian Supreme Court. And I covered all the business stories there. And it was so fascinating. And during that time, I thought uh, maybe I should try to get an LLM and explore a little more. Uh, so I came to SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo, and I got my LLM there. And while at law school there also, I volunteered at a local newspaper in Buffalo and did some stories for them too. So, <laughs> so it was always fun for me to go and find out the story behind what's going on. So I was always curious like that. And then I passed the New York bar exam at the first attempt and everybody was like, oh my, you just got here. <laughs> How did you happen to pass it? And I said, oh, well, it just happened because I said, I don't want to keep taking the same thing. It's kind of boring doing the same thing over and over. So I did that. And uh, then I happened to visit uh, Huntsville, Texas. There was a friend and uh, uh, I went to the criminal justice department and asked them, uh, hey, do, are you guys looking for an adjunct or something? I just uh, became a lawyer and maybe I could adjunct for you all while I'm looking for a job. And the dean, associate dean, uh, Dr. Wes Johnson, he said, I have a better idea. Why don't you join the PhD program? You have three days to take the GRE. You can take it because we are about to start the review. And we'll see how you do, and um, we'll go from there. So in three days, I quickly took the GRE, and I got a good score, and I got into the PhD program. And then I said, what about me being the lawyer? And I said, oh, well, we can get to it. Uh, and so before I know it, I got <laughs> caught in this. <laughs> and uh, um, I really enjoyed his teaching and uh, you know, exploring the law, and then I did my comprehensive exams in criminal law and started publishing in that area. Anyway, I liked publishing all the time. It's just like, like to see my name out there. <laughs> so little ego went on. And so I went into, um, you know, working. Then I got graduated from Sam Houston State University. And that's where I met my husband. And so both of us now work at Lamar University. And, and what they focus on corrections, among other things. Yes, because my husband was a correctional officer uh, uh, while he was um, uh, uh, doing his PhD because he needed to support himself. So that got me interested in the corrections. I said, what is all this about? Because uh, uh, back in India, as a law student, I did volunteer at the biggest uh, a prison in India, the Tihar Jail in New Delhi. 
And so I knew how it was to go inside the prison and talk to the inmates and what they had done. And I had already uh, done that. I had helped them with their plea deals and stuff like that in India. So I thought, I'm interested in knowing what is going on with corrections here. So I, my husband was able to educate me on that, and I got deeper and deeper into that. And I looked at use of force. While I was looking at use of force for police, um, I also started getting interested. Uh, what about uh, in corrections, and uh, what are the standards? So I was looking mostly at tasers and stun guns, um, which is a, a, you know intermediate level. And saw that there were so many obvious cases where it shouldn't have been used in prisons, and they are using it just to teach the you know inmate a lesson, and that's not okay. And that is where I saw that it was so obvious, and there were you know there were suits, lawsuits, and um, that's how I got interested more. And then after that, I also got interested in the you know correctional officer deviance. Then uh, how inmates uh, also use, uh, you know, uh, um, um, masturbation as a tool to harass the female correctional officers. And that was so, you know, uh, sad for the female correctional officers, especially when they don't get supervisor support. Okay. Yeah. We have something in common. Every time I've taken and passed a bar exam, somebody has said something like, you passed? <laughs> Angie, Angie, let me turn to you. What, what brings you to your position in uh, recruiting in the Anchorage Police Department? Sure. Well, um, if you would ask me when I was 16, if I'd ever been a police officer, there's no way I would believe that I would be. Um, I grew up in Alaska, born and raised in Alaska. I'm sort of a product of the pipeline days, born in 1979, um, when Alaska was booming with oil. And uh, I did graduate early mostly because I was very uh, energetic and tall for my age. Uh, so I, I was raised without running water and electricity only because my parents chose that lifestyle. They always dreamed of being homesteaders in Alaska. Um, so it was interesting commuting into town uh, to go to a big uh, urban school, but in a, growing up in a very rural area. Um, so I couldn't wait to get out. So that was another reason for graduating early. I drove the Alcan to Seattle and I did my undergrad at UW. Um, University of Washington. Uh, I, I was interested in criminal justice only because I was a, kind of obsessed with reading about serial killers in middle, middle school. So I thought I wanted to be in the FBI behavioral science unit. Um, but when I found out the FBI kind of moves you wherever, uh, I just was more focused on starting a family. And uh, so uh, I did work with adolescent sex offenders right out of college. I was fascinated with sex offender treatment. I wanted to be a certified sex offender treatment provider. But when I moved back to Alaska, some of the laws were different here with polygraphs and things like that. So I um, became a probation officer with the Department of Corrections and I supervised uh, mentally ill sex offenders. So I had a small caseload and I got to work a lot with mental health meetings, transitioning um, serious offenders back into the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did that for a few years and then 
I was 21. And so like Fadisha talks about going into the prisons and having being exposed to mm-hmm. <laughs> by inmates. And, uh, and I was like going, you know, going into felons homes unarmed as a 21 year old young woman. And so I got into training firearms instructor, defensive tactics. I was a full-time instructor at their academy for the Department of Corrections for Correctional Officers, Probation Officers, uh, Prisoner Transport Officers. Um, We had politics and, you know, politics is rich in Anchorage. So some changes occurred uh, in the Department of Corrections and I decided to go over to the um, police side. So I was hired as a police officer in 2007 uh, and went through the basic police officer academy, kind of like starting over. And I loved patrol. I love working downtown Anchorage, talking with people, seeing the different diversity that is downtown Anchorage. Eventually, my kiddos were little and they I worked terrible days. I had Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. And while they were in school, I never saw my kids. And so I decided to move to the training center where I worked full time just doing academies. I taught criminal law, firearms, um, and worked with the recruits, getting them sort of out the door for field to field training. Um, and in the meantime, I got a master's degree in early childhood special ed because my youngest daughter has Down syndrome. So I just was learning about the systems, the community systems at play for special education, which actually helped me as a police officer mm-hmm. dealing with families with special needs. And so um, I finished that in 2013. And then um, you know, everything changed for us in law enforcement in 2014 when Ferguson happened. And we really decided that we needed to work full-time in the community and we needed to do more community outreach. So I got really involved in the union, um, created a nonprofit, Anchorage Cops for Community. uh, And I moved to backgrounds in recruiting in 2019. And I just started doing recruiting events, uh, just nonstop fundraisers and community outreach. Um, And then it's coming on my 20th year. So 20 years in law enforcement this November. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm 42 years old. I can't just stop working. So I, in uh, January of last year, 2020, I decided to go back to school again. Um, And I'm right now, right in the middle of a PhD program for clinical psychology. I'd love to be a psychologist um, when I retire. So I will have to retire probably in the next year or two so I can work on practicum internship and dissertation. So I'm just very passionate about humanizing police officers, um, connecting with the community and making sure that we never have a situation in Anchorage like they saw in Ferguson and around the country where that trust is broken down and, you know, our officers, you know, are, not, are seen as robots more than humans. Yeah. So that's what I'm, that's where I'm at. It's crazy. That's it. You two have me exhausted. I can't go on. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to, I know we have an agenda that we are supposed to cover, but I wanted to start by reading some headlines that came out yesterday. Uh, We are recording this on September 15th, I think, 14th, Uh, September 14th. Uh, And yesterday I was simply struck by a number of the headlines that were produced by the Google news trawlers that we have set up here. Let me just read them to you. Uh, First one is out of the Orlando Sentinel. Facility closures continue as Florida prisons face unprecedented staff shortages. And the first line in the article reads, with almost 30% of security staff positions vacant across Florida prisons, the corrections department continues to close sections of its facilities 
to mitigate its now past critical staff shortage. So that one's from Orlando. Up next up is from uh, Nebraska. The headline was, loved ones, union reps call for changes in prisons amid dire staffing shortages. And then from there, we go over into uh, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where the headline is, pressure mounts as officer's death underscores staffing shortages at Metro co uh, Corrections. And then another one from uh, Kansas. And this one is from uh, Shawnee County. We are at a very critical stage. 20% of Shawnee County corrections officer positions are vacant. Vadisha, you've done a lot of work with corrections. What yeah. in the world is going on? And if you have any ideas, how can we change this trend? Um, my thoughts are that we have come up with a theory uh, called the economics of crossing over. And there we talked about why correctional officers moved uh, closer to the inmates and engaged in inappropriate relationships. But uh, when we looked at the economics, what we were looking at is poor public image of correctional officers, low salaries, and uh, you know the dangerousness of their jobs. These are some of the things that make them uh, go closer to uh, inmates rather than uh, to the people outside in society. And I feel like uh, when you talk about a police officer, right now the situation is a little different. But when you talk about a police officer, people look at it with pride. But when you talk about a correctional officer, the public image is not very strong. And uh, besides this, I have uh, recently looked at other issues like um, third-party harassers of um, female correctional officers. One officer in Cook County, uh, uh, Illinois, where around 529 uh, female correctional officers just filed a lawsuit against the you know, um, sheriff's office because of inmate masturbation. She, she says that in a week, five times, they don't know when an inmate is going to just masturbate on them. Who wants that kind of work, a hostile work environment? It's getting really bad. And supervisors are saying, oh, it comes with the job. You need to toughen up, you know? And uh, uh, they're not providing the support. There should be disciplinary actions. The inmates need to know that they have to behave well. Otherwise, you know, there will be consequences. And when there are no consequences, they are getting ignored for their behavior. They continue uh, just like kids would when they're not disciplined. And that is the reason why uh, for the female correctional officers, the work environment is really, really bad. Plus, given the fact that it's got a low pay, considering how much danger they're exposed to. And um, I think the poor public image, poor, the public image, needs to be upheld better. I think they made an attempt by calling guards correctional officers, but the things associated with guards are still continuing. The supervisors are not strongly supporting, and those are some of my thoughts. And Angie, what's your take on this? I know you're the 
there's no corrections function in the Anchorage Police Department, but you work closely with the Department of Corrections up there, which is a state agency. What's your take on all this? I don't know about where you guys are, but I can certainly tell you that everyone in Anchorage is hurting to find employees. So when you have, you know, COVID and you have people making more money on unemployment than they are in low paying jobs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, you know, unfortunately in law enforcement, correctional officers are often some of the lowest paid employees. And so, you know, Will knows me, I'm always going to sort of default to pay and benefits, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, working environment is huge. And so you have to take now this workforce who's at home making a lot of money um, and, you know, the natural attrition of a very stressful job. And now you're recruiting heavy. People are coming out of their homes after teleworking. You can't telework from jail as a jail mm-hmm. employee. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think they're just competing with a market that is dying for employees. And unfortunately, we're just not paying these people enough to deal with the mm-hmm. things that they have to deal with. Um, you know, as we look at politics, everyone's saying, you know, less taxes, less taxes. Um, and, they're expecting so much more out of these public employees. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you get people to sign up for that. They're not naive to what's happening in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you each have been working with prospective police officers for years. But Isha, in your capacity teaching in the criminal justice mm-hmm. at uh, sections of Lamar and yes. Angie in recruitment and retention in a variety of different candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, what changes have you seen in the general nature of prospective police officers over the times you have been working with them? What, what changes in their backgrounds, what changes in their attitudes have you seen? Mm-hmm. And what do, you, what do you think those changes are due to? Angie, let me start with you. Sure. Um, well, certainly lots of changes over 20 years. I'd say, first of all, not so much with the individuals themselves, but just in the peer numbers. Um, When I first started in the police department, we would have a weekend of testing and we would fill a room with 500 testers. Um, Now we can fill a room maybe with 10 or 15. Um, And and so, you know, first of all, the sheer numbers. Uh, In the past three to five years, uh, we, we get about a thousand applicants a year for two academies and our academies are small, you know, 15, 20, maybe 25 people. Um, but we bet over a thousand people in the last six months, we have dropped that by half. Um, and so, you know, definitely the numbers. And when you have higher numbers, you're able to weed down, you know, the best of the best. And we have very high hiring, hiring standards here. So the changes I've seen in the individuals, uh, we always have our base. So people come to us because they want meaningful work. I've interviewed people that are, you know, graduates from the Colorado School of Mines. They're petroleum engineers on the North Slope making upwards of three, $400,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting across from me, a police officer, and, and they want to have this job. And I say, you, you know, we hire at $34.52 an hour, right? Um, I mean, there's lots of, you know, increases that you can get over time, but, and they're, yeah, I just want meaningful work. And I want to do something every day that means something to my community. And, and we get that base. But the ones that the changes that I've seen is we have two groups of people kind of that are coming to us. One is very naive. Maybe they're not paying a sort of attention to what's going on in the world, no life experience. Uh, and then the other is kind of 
hardened, hardened, maybe from military, maybe from life. Mm -hmm. And they see the narrative that's happening with the police departments across the nation. And they're like, I can do this. I want to get out there and I want to fight and I want to, you know, drive fast. And it's like, we really kind of don't want that fringe. You know, we want those people that are coming to us just for meaningful work. And so over time, we've just had less and less of that middle group that our base. Um, in the past, people were just coming to, to, government work because there, it was good. It was stable. It was honorable. And now they're kind of kind of coming for political reasons or, you know, at, you know, these, these fringe reasons. And I just don't think those people stay around very long. And, and Vadisha, what have you seen in the time period you've been teaching yes. prospective officers? Yes. Uh, I have taught in several places. I started out, uh, at Sam Houston, then I started Pennsylvania, then in Dallas, and now here. And uh, I have seen initially, uh, you know, there were lots of officers, people who had been involved in the um, Iraq war. And those people, they wanted to continue and become police officers, you know, after coming back from the war. And they did have PTSD and all that, but they still felt that they needed, that they could become good police officers. And it, uh, they continued in Dallas. I had a huge number of uh, students who were police officers, who worked for the sheriff's office and who were aspiring to be officers. There was a lot of promise. They really wanted to be office police officers. And um, even at Lamar, uh, initially I saw many students really, really wanting and really driven to be officers. But now, um, since last year, I have been mostly online and I've spoken to my online students how they feel about things, you know. And uh, some of them still feel like uh, that the police need good officers and they feel like they can become those good officers and make a difference and change the image. But others are uh, very shaky and say that... Uh, the you know the light is on the officers on police right now. The whole uh, spotlight is on the police, and they don't know if they want to go there and if they will be just a victim or they can really make a difference. I have seen that. On the other hand, I have seen uh, students who are existing officers uh, from Beaumont Police Department, and they feel like since they are very close to the community, they feel like. It's not like the national uh, scenario in Beaumont. They are still going to communities. They have their windows down. They're waving out to the community members and have the trust. And they feel like uh, they, they are, there is not much of a difference. And they're saying even in recruitment, we are seeing about the same. That's what they said to me. Interesting. Now, the, the changes yeah. that the two of you have seen uh, we're now 16 months post George Floyd in mm -hmm. Minneapolis. Uh, have the changes escalated in that time period? Uh, Vadisha, what would you say? I think right after that, uh, there was a huge, big divide. And even now, the big divide in the country is continuing, um, not only over racism, but mask and vaccine. And there's so many issues that are dividing the country up. But uh, I feel uh, at that time, it was very high. The emotions were running very high. But right now, they have come down to more being more realistic. And they feel like their communities are fine. And it's not that bad. That's what they are feeling. 
And Angie, what's your take on that? You know, I ask every applicant that comes and interviews with me what they think about the national narrative against police officers. And I will say most of them are very positive. You know, most of them are from Alaska. Um, we are very supported by our community. And like Vidisha said, you know, you're, yeah. you can't go anywhere without someone waving at you and mm -hmm. telling you thank you for your support. And I will say I've, I've seen a change in that. Our, our community is much more vocal about telling us thank you, yes. uh, about coming up to us and stopping us and saying, like, I see what's happening on TV, but we, we, we appreciate you and what you do. And so most of them, they do say like, uh, you know, I, I'm not concerned about the national narrative. I know there's good police officers out there and I want to be one of those. Yeah. Um, and, and although I'm, I know I might be under the microscope, uh, I'm going to do the best I can every day. And, you know, I hope in the end that works out for me. So certainly it's on people's mind. Um, when they come and they apply. So the numbers have come down, but at the same time, like I think people are very positive about it. I think both of you need to spend a day or two in the Portland Police Bureau's <laughs> recruitment department, uh, because indeed in Portland, uh, people do wave at police officers. Not always the right wave, however. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit different, I think, in major cities in the country, in the Seattle's, mm -hmm. Portland's, and New York's, and Chicago's, and even Dallas's, than mm -hmm. it might be in places where the populace is generally su uh, supportive of police. Mm -hmm. uh, Angie, I, I like to tell the story in some of our seminars, that, and nobody believes it's true, but that in September of last year, the Anchorage Assembly, which is the city council in Anchorage, voted unanimously uh, to, for a resolution supporting and thanking Anchorage police officers for what they do. That is an assembly that is dominated by Democrats. People don't think that story is true, but it is true, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we're so lucky. And I think you know, I th I've thought a lot about this because I get a lot of calls from big city cops and they're like, uh, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And I and I do think there's a huge value in a small town. And, yeah. you know, yeah, we have 300,000 people in and out of Anchorage every day. But there is something about, you know, that community outreach, that personal personalization of mm -hmm. your local law enforcement and in those big cities. I uh, you know, I, I lived in Seattle and you don't see people just walking yeah. the beat and saying hello to businesses and getting to know their local community. And it's really easy to be mean to someone online or when you're yeah. disconnected from them, but mm -hmm. you wouldn't actually dehumanize them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 they're very dehumanized in the big cities. And so mm -hmm. we still have that here um, in our culture, in our community. And we are, we are very supported and very lucky. Yes. Uh, Vadisha, let me shift gears just a little bit. There have been a lot of studies. Many of them are uh, a little bit old at this point, but a lot of studies that show a statistical correlation between education levels, college education levels, yes. and performance as a police officer. So, yes. for example, some of the correlations are positive correlations. Mm -hmm. uh, so the higher the college education, the more citizen compliments uh, mm -hmm. that you get. Uh, yes. they, some of them are negative correlations. The more college education, the less sick leave that is used, the mm -hmm. less complaints that you get and the like. Um, uh, what is your assessment? What influence yeah. do you think? I think it is extremely important for all police officers to have at least a bachelor's 
degree. And a lot of the Bowman police officers actually are our students uh, so in the master's program. And that's why a lot of them have got the master's from Lamar. And that makes a huge difference because they are well-educated. And uh, so, um, you know, one or two times, uh, like I was stopped only once by a police officer and uh, <laughs> I was on my way to work and I had taken a Benadryl night before and I just missed the school zone and they went a little higher uh, on, uh, and they stopped me and I said, oh, I'm just so sorry. I kept looking for that light. I didn't know how I missed it, you know, and uh, he was very nice and let me go. And, uh, but most of education, I think, is very important because it gives them a sense of reason. I think reasoning uh, sets in the knowledge of the laws and the awareness sets in more than the emotions. You so, see, and uh, uh, so I feel the education is very important for uh, police officers. So, uh, Angie, let me dive into this a little bit more. Um, I, I'm thinking back on one study that I saw. Again, this is one of the older ones that analyzed the effect of education on policing in terms of a third variable. And that third variable was dogmatism. So as education increased, dogmatism, which you could roughly define as a fixed adherence to a rigid belief structure, as education goes up, dogmatism goes down. And as dogmatism goes down, performance as a police officer goes up. You accept that? Um, I, I'm not, you know, I have a lot of thoughts in this area and I, I want to almost, uh, just throw it in a different perspective. You know, I think it depends on the culture and, you know, for us in Alaska, we have a strong military culture and a strong, strong, we have a lot of people here from the military. And although I don't disagree with anything Vadisha mentioned, as far as, you know, sort of what college can bring to you diversity, like, right. That's exactly what you're saying is the more experience you have, the more diversity you experience, the less sort of that dogmatism is at play. I get that. But at the same time, I think you can get there other places than college, for example, you know, for eight years in the military with that diverse community, yeah. the travel around the world, we see, we, we don't have a minimum requirement of a, of a college education. We have high school or GED equivalent. Um, and we see people coming in with high-ranking military officials that have more reason, logic, and education than any four-year yeah. college student I've ever met. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, I really think it depends on the culture, sort of who you're drawing applicants from. Uh, but I, I do believe that it's so important what Vidisha mentioned, you know, as far as being able to, to put aside that emotional sort of pull towards whatever that dogma is that you have been maybe raised with and turn that logic on and be able to sort of compartmentalize what you have going on, be the biggest, most mature adult in the room, solve the problem. Don't get emotional. Don't get tied in. And you're going to have less uses of force. You're going to be able to talk to people. I'll tell you the best candidates for police officers I've seen have a lot of customer service experience. They've talked to people. They've talked oh. to mad, mad customers. They've, they've been able to, uh, you know, de 
emphasize the emotions and really talk about logic. And so, you know, I, I really am hopeful that there's more research in this area. I, I really am. This is, a, this can be anything. It's a call for more people to research. There's not a lot of money in government service research, and we just really need that. We need to look at who the best applicants are. Yeah, I, I completely agree with, with what both of you have said. Uh, and particularly, Angie, I'm struck by your last point, because really, most of the research here is old. Uh, and by old, I mean, 20 years old. Uh, and we haven't seen much done recently. And I think it's really important, particularly as, as a society, we are undergoing this self-analysis of what we want law enforcement to look like and what we want law enforcement officers to be. Mm -hmm. uh, an outside influence, though, is the recruitment and retention crisis that we see in law enforcement today. Uh, and that has resulted in many law enforcement agencies lowering minimum education requirements. So for example, in my home city of Portland, Oregon, uh, you used to have to have a bachelor's degree to hire on. Today, it's a GED. Uh, and I, I think we all have to ask ourselves the question, how can we do a better job if we wanna recruit college students? And Angie, I'm totally with you. College isn't everything. There's yeah. other life experiences that can be more important than college. But if we wanna recruit college students, how can we do a better job of it? So Angie, let me start with you on that. What do you think? Our challenge is we have a very strong SRO program, school resource officers. So they're in our high schools. They are every day being humanized to those students. And those students love our officers. Our officers don't really get involved really with major discipline issues. Um, they leave that to the administration of the school. Of course, criminal issues, they're, they're there to deal with some of that. But um, we have like a great bunch of kids at 18 that want to be cops. Where we lose them is between 18 and 21, where they go off to college, they find other interests, they, they go and they get a job. And now we have to pull them away from their job. And so, you know, I think we need to do a better job keeping those kids connected to us. Uh, we need to be in the universities a little bit more, maybe involved in research a little more. I would love to see more um, law enforcement agencies have uh, full-time psychological staff that have like a research component to that. And they can tie in research students, psychology students. Um, you know, as I enter this PhD in clinical psychology, you're right. Well, there is, there's just not research going on and, and I'm digging through the research and it's, it's not really relevant. It's uh, older. And I think we can do a better job partnering with universities uh, mm -hmm. to sort of bring them into our sort of our culture. And then we go and, and get into their culture. And I think we're both better for it. it the only thing I'll, I'll add to it's something our department does is it pays for um, uh, education assistance. So now you have like, like Fadisha's uh, students, they're police officers. Mm -hmm. And so we're paying for you to go back to school and get that education. Yes, and and many of my students are on that. Yeah, and now they're getting paid. Next to the students and they're like, oh, you're a police officer, but something has to change in our police culture. And that's that we can't be afraid to go out in the community and tell people we're police officers. We were yes. raised, I was raised in a time, you know, in the law enforcement community where we weren't supposed to tell people that. 
everyone was out to get us. We were those people who oh. everyone's got to look over your shoulder. Don't let your kids tell their friends, your mom's a police officer. Cause they're going to find you and come and kill you. Like <laughs> that's just not true. And mm-hmm. we have to change that culture in police departments where we are proud of what we do. And we go out into those classes and we go out in the community and we talk about who we are and that humanizes, humanizes ourselves and our stories, our narratives. Yeah. So, so Venetia, l- let mm-hmm. me turn to you. When you, when you are uh, teaching a class and you're having mm-hmm. a discussion with your students mm-hmm. about a career in law enforcement, what are you hearing from them? Uh, what, why is it they want to become police officers today? Is it because of the pay and benefits? Is it because of a community orientation? Because of a belief in law enforcement? What some combination um, of those? Why? Yes, um, I have had recruiters from uh, you know nearby police departments, not just Beaumont, come over and you know talk to the students and try to recruit them, and they talk about the benefits and the salaries and all of those things. That those things do you know attract some of the students, but I have seen like most of them already have the idea, like they have officers in their families. So they want to be officers too, because they understand how noble it is to be an officer. So they want to continue. Um, Others are, you know, depending on who is recruiting them, the officers are really friendly and nice and showing them the fun side of it. And then they are kind of a a little more relaxed, but now it's uh, interesting they're getting less and less interested. Like uh, the other day, somebody came to recruit in my husband's uh, uh, class. Nobody wanted to be an officer. Like, really? Nobody? Like, that is kind of strange. Uh, And um, so, uh, but I still have online students who, when they're introducing themselves or when we are talking about career goals and stuff, they say that, yes, I think uh, I want to be an officer because I want to be a good one and show, uh, you know, I think... I can make it a good police officer and I have the integrity and uh, the temperament to carry it through. And, um, and others are saying, yes, my dad was one, I want to be one and I want to continue that uh, thing. So as I'm seeing different, different reasons why people want to be, but uh, I, I'm sure this um, benefits are very good. And the more officers come and talk to our students, like uh, Angie said, how they are already going and talking to the high school students, that community relation is extremely important. And so what we do at Lamar is every year, um, twice a year, we have a community leaders and uh, our students and the faculty members, we get together where uh, the students can present some of their internship things that they have done. And we have police officers from all over Beaumont, Bider, and all these nearby places that come and uh, talk to the students. And uh, we try to make them understand that this is a great job and how we can be close together. And it's not uh, something that you are afraid of. We are close together and we look out for each other and we are here to help. So we are trying to do that. With COVID, we haven't had that meeting, you know, this last year and this year, but every semester we usually have that where we get some of the select students to come and talk. I was selected as a guest speaker for one of them where I went and talked about my experiences and how they should go into law enforcement. Now, uh, Angie, I know some people are going to be listening to this and uh, and hear the talk that, or the, the words that you and Vadisha have said 
about getting police officers into schools in the uh, school resource officer program you described in Anchorage. I know some people are going to listen to that and they're going to say, wait a minute, that's not what's going on nationally right now. Nationally, we're having school districts and cities uh, debate and in some cases insist upon taking police officers out of schools. Um, is there any of that sort of discussion up in Anchorage? Yes, absolutely, there is. And uh, you can read, um, you know, Obama's report, 21st Century Policing, and it actually talks a lot about school resource officers and how they can unreasonably stigmatize young children because they're being dragged around by police officers because they're in trouble. And I think it's very important to have those discussions because I think it can have a negative effect if it's not done correctly. And I think that's why we have had a lot of talks with our politicians about uh, our school resource officers and say, come out and see what they do, because really they are serving as that community function, like Vadisha uh, mentioned, um, that community outreach. They really don't drag kids around by their ear and and kind of like give them, you know, extra tickets for doing this. And that's not their function. You know, their function, they teach classes uh, on use of force. They teach classes on personal safety. They, they are they're in uh, you know, really, really close relations with the teachers. Um, they're helping students. They're bringing homework during COVID. They're, they're taking homework from the school and delivering it to kids. Mm-hmm. Whose parents can't get to the school to pick it up. They're delivering Chromebooks and they're, they're out there as that function. So, you know, I think it's important to not just see that headline and not just read, you know, a blurb about some bad incident that happened at an, with an SRO, but like really look at your program and what is their function and what is their mission. And that's to make every kid successful at school. Um, and so it's important how it's done, not just that it's done or not done. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question I wanted to throw open to both of you. Uh, many police departments, most police departments in the country right now, are pursuing lateral hires. And my favorite example is the Seattle Police Department going to Indianapolis and buying a billboard advertisement in the city, trying to convince Indianapolis police officers to move to Seattle. I don't think anybody bit, I don't think anybody did it, but it it was really a story of how vigorous the pursuit of lateral hires has gotten in various police departments. So uh, what have been, uh, I guess I should start with Angie on this. What has been your experience in Anchorage on prospective laterals, what their expectations are when they talk to you about coming to Anchorage and also how they, those expectations jibe with the reality of policing? Well, you know, it, from a dollars and cents, high level management level, it makes a lot of sense, right? We are spending so much money training these officers. We, we train them up. We spend millions of dollars on them. We don't have a pension anymore. So they leave us in five years. You know, I, I'm stuck here for 20 years. I have a pension. I, you know, I got very lucky, got in at a good time. You know, uh, laterals call us all the time and they, they call me up and they're angry. They're frustrated. Sometimes the first words out of their mouths are, we lost reasonable suspicion in my town and I can't do police work like this. 
you know, and I have to have a conversation with them about, you know, Alaska has a very strict constitution. We never really had the reasonable suspicion that everyone else had in, in you know, federal case law. Um, we've always had to have uh, much more good police work done at an initial level to protect the rights of our citizens in Alaska. And we take that very seriously here. So on one hand, we, we have to explain to them, well, we already sort of do that. And then on the other hand, you know, I have to say, like, we didn't get this to this place in our in our with our community and they love us by accident. We do a lot of hard work, volunteerism. We have community outreach monthly, if not, you know, weekly when we're out in the community, we're volunteering off duty. We're doing these things to ensure that the community trusts us. So we have actually as of right now, we are putting all of our all of our hires, whether they're lateral 20 year officers from another town, whether they're in state laterals, uh, we're putting them all through our full academy six months, they have to go to academy again. And, you know, I can't tell you why the decision makers, the policymakers have made that choice. But anecdotally, I would choose that because I want people to go through our culture. Mm -hmm. I want people to learn how to police in Alaska and to police in our town. And we have a huge responsibility to our citizenry and they trust us. Um, Unfortunately, right now, the way things are just throwing someone onto the street from another town and another culture is just, I I personally wouldn't want to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we want those people, we want those people with the training and, you know, I hope they call us after they see this um, and I can explain to them how we do policing here. Um, But it's a risk, you know, when, when someone's coming from a different culture. And Patricia, I assume you see people who are changing departments from one to another uh, come through your program. Uh, Why are they making the changes? What are they telling you? I think they are looking for a little safer jobs. First, they came in uh, to become a police officer, but uh, they feel it's really risky at at the current times. So they would rather go to social work and do something related, but not directly be a police officer. So I feel those kind of things. I've um, given the national scenario, even though we have a good community and all that, I still think it is important for police officers to continue to work in partnership with the community and make their presence felt. Go out there, walk out there, ride a bicycle, you know, hang out with the people, have a program where they are just doing stuff for the community, handing out something, you know, simple as, you know, donuts or whatever. Just get people to come together and uh, hang out and see how they can be trusted. Uh, Do some little goodwill things. Like Angie said, they're doing, you know, taking stuff from here to there, homeworks for students. Those things don't go unnoticed. And even though there is, a, you know, the bigger cities, I know it is very dangerous right now. But I think uh, bigger cities also are into small sections. You see, every officer gets a beat. And I think if they are all trying in their own little areas, and they might be able to get the trust back because it's extremely important that uh, officers are able to build the trust back and, uh, you know, so that we don't lose more people and understand that we come from, they come from the same community. They're not somebody separate and that they're aliens are brought in here to rule us. It's not that. It's that we are all together and these officers, just like the criminals, are not different from us. Officers are not different from us. They all come from us and we need to look at them as community members who can help each other and not hurt each other. And, and Angie, that 
takes us, I think, very naturally to what you've described as AC4C or Anchorage Cops for Community. Uh, a little anecdote first before I, I throw it over to you. Uh, I was at dinner a couple of months ago at an LRIS seminar uh, sitting next to uh, the president of the Anchorage Police Department Employees Association, who was talking with the president of another police union, roughly the same, well, about half the size or double the size of Anchorage. So pretty big city. I'm not going to identify him or his city, but it's a city with lots of very complicated problems and a very high crime rate. Uh, and the president of the Anchorage Union was describing AC4C and what the police union does. And the president of the other union asked him, uh, how many hours uh, a year do you think your members, the union members, volunteer on community activities? Uh, and the Anchorage president answered, 60 hours. I don't think I've seen anybody quite as shocked as the president from the other city. Uh, he just simply couldn't believe that that had happened. But the volunteerism in Anchorage that has been done through AC4C and even before AC4C uh, is what has made the relationship in Anchorage such a positive one, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've always tried to connect with the community, but after Ferguson happened 2014, we sat around the table and sketched out designs and bylaws, and we decided to start Anchorage Cops for Community, our nonprofit arm of the APDEA union. And, you know, we go back, I constantly go back to the mission. We are, we are dedicated to having positive interaction, increasing community well-being through that positive interaction with the police and the community. And it takes me back, you know, to the early 1800s, like the modern father of policing, Sir Robert Peel, right? You know, he said very bluntly, you know, the people are the police and the police are the people. Like, mm -hmm we have gone so far away from that in our culture, this divisive us versus them. And we cannot afford to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. We have got to change our narrative. We have got to be out there. Just like Vadisha said, we've got to be walking the streets, getting on bicycles. And so we have a lot of events because we're sort of structuring that for our officers. And I'm passionate about doing great things for the community. We do a back to school event where we collect clothing and then we take over a school parking lot and we let kids who can't afford to do so shop for back to school, new backpacks, new school supplies, coats and whatnot. And that's great. They have that stuff. They go back with a fresh haircut and they're looking good for their first day of school, but they also got to spend two or three hours with a police officer. They got to check out the police car. They got to see mm -hmm. smiles and that's great too. But the third variable that I'm super passionate about is what that does for our police officers. Our police officers get jaded after five to seven years, right? They, they see the negative experience over and over and over. They get spit on, they get called names, like nobody signs up for that. And so now they're out there and they're shaking hands and they're, you know, kissing babies and hugging families. And they're carrying loads of clothes home 10 minutes down the street because this family can't afford a vehicle. And the kids are smiling ear to ear and haven't had a shower in a week. Um, and that for our officers, that renews that sense of meaningfulness that they all walked in the door and signed up for. So, you know, we are structuring that at the Anchorage Cops for Community where we're putting on these programs and events and our officers are being supported by their department to volunteer too. not only on duty, you know, I hate to call that volunteering, but they're being released from some of their jobs as detectives and they're getting hooked. 
And now they're coming out on their day off and they're, they're coming to me with ideas. Oh, I had an idea about doing this. And they're dedicating their lives and their families' lives to putting on these events. And it just changes your life to go to one of these. And so I just hope that that's my hope for every department around the nation. And that there's that collective agreement between the union, because typically unions don't like volunteerism, right? We want to get our people paid and that <laughs> department, you know, they, so this collaborative approach with the community, the department and the union, like it's just gold if it works. Angie, give us like half a dozen examples of what AC4C does, uh, typical events. Sure. Uh, we do shop with a cop and firefighter where we take kids from a local, uh, you know, homeless shelter and they get paired with a police or firefighter. They shop. What's awesome about that event is they get that cash in their hand. They're supposed to shop for themselves. They always shop for family members and our, and our officers always dig in their pockets and put the extra money out to, to make sure they get that pair of boots they want or whatever. Um, we have project angel tree where the community can come and pick a kid and they can shop for them. And then our officers get to deliver those presents on Christmas. So they're going out to lower income families. And they're the ones that get to deliver the, the presents. Um, we have clothesline project, like I mentioned. Um, we also partner with a ton of different uh, nonprofits in town. So we do, you know, torch run with special Olympics. Uh, we do uh, all kinds of events. We do cleanups with companies where we're out in the community doing cleanup events. Uh, we just revitalized a local park that they used to call Dead Cop Park. Um, and, and as the name of one of our officers that was killed in the line of duty, we put a bunch of money into revitalizing that park. So now it's a beautiful park with the mural on the wall that local people can come out and really celebrate our officer's life and his sacrifice. Um, so we do a, just a ton of events. Almost anybody that comes to us that wants to partner, uh, we'll send some cops to that. So if you have a nonprofit and you want to do an event and you think, you know, a, a police officer in a vehicle will, will be a good asset, I'll call the department and say, hey, is there anybody you can spare? And they send someone. So that relationship is so important. Um, and they sort of start recognizing that we're out there in the community. And we do, of course, coffee with a cop. We do hike with a cop, bowling with a cop, ice cream with a cop. I mean, we're doing it. We're, our, our mission really is to be in the community at least once a month with these positive interactions, because we have got to build that karma bank up and we can't ever mm -hmm. afford to, to lose that. So that's excellent. Well, Vazisha and, and Angie, thank you so much for participating in this podcast. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, uh, and it's been great to have you join us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for including us. Yes. Okay. And with that, folks, thanks for joining us at LRIS for our premium podcast series. Uh, this is Will Aitchison signing off. <laughs>